Did you know that 75% of adults state that they want a closer, more intimate relationship with God? Many have said that that's the most coveted thing they want for their future. But despite that statistic, about one third of Americans say they read the scripture weekly, while another 45% say they rarely read their Bible, if at all. So that's our country. But what about the church? It's estimated that 18% of born-again believers actually read their Bible daily. Even more startling than only 18% reading their Bibles, another 23% say that they've never read their Bibles at all. That's one in almost every four believers who don't read their Bibles. So let me ask you this question. How many people here today desire a closer walk with God and want Him to be the number, pro number one priority in your life? If so, this might be one of the most important messages that you'll ever hear about your Christian development. We have to understand as believers, because of the essence of who God is, he reveals himself through his words. Let me say it like this. God speaking and acting is one in the same. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And because of the potency of his power, it was what he said it was going to be. There was light. And God is very intentional with his words. Unlike us, he doesn't speak just to hear his own voice. Instead, his words are spoken to have a very particular outcome on the people who hear it. So as a part of Christ's church family, we need to place a high priority on the word if we're going to know God properly. So last week we covered in our sermon that God's word is authoritative and we covered the inspiration and the transmission of the text so that we can know that the Bible should be obeyed. Today we wanna to focus on translation, interpretation, and finally application. But let me start off with a story. A young seminary graduate was seeking a position at his first church. One pulpit committee requested that he come in for an interview. During the course of their interview, the chairman asked the young man, young man, do you know your Bible? The recent graduate responded with confidence, yes, sir, I know my Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Someone else asked, do you know the stories and parables? The candidate answered once again, oh yes, I know them all. A third interviewer requested, tell us, one of the parables of Jesus and the one of the good Samaritan. And a third interviewer requested, tell us one of the parables of Jesus. How about the one of the good Samaritan? And so the interviewee took a deep breath and he began to share. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night and fell upon stony ground. And the thorns rose up and choked him nearly half to death. He said, what shall I do? Then he said, I shall arise and go to my father's house. And he arose and climbed up into a sycamore tree. The next day, Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came by and they carried him down to the ark of Moses to take care of him. And as he was going through the eastern gate in the ark, he caught his hair on a limb and he hung there for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterward, he hungered and the ravens came to feed him. The next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to Nineveh. 
And when he got down there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall. He cried out to her, chunk down the great fish. And she said, how many times shall I chunk it down? Unto seven times? And he said, nay, but unto 70 times seven. So they chunked the great fish down 490 times. Then it burst asunder into the midst, until their midst. And they picked up the 12 baskets of its fragments in which Jesus fed the multitudes. And they asked him, Lord, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? The pulpit committee sat there speechless. They were astounded at what they had just heard. Finally, after several seconds had passed, the pulpit committee chair finally said, folks, I really think we ought to give him a shot. I know he's young, but he sure does know his Bible. <sighs> How many people do you know that have a fragmented understanding of what the Bible says, like the young seminary graduate. Sometimes our understanding of the biblical story is like a bunch of scenes from various movies rammed together with no context. And we can't make sense of what's going on totally. How many times have you heard that the God of the Old Testament is totally different from the God of the New Testament? Maybe you've asked that question yourself. Well, last week we talked about the Bible has great continuity, which means it's one long story carried out over extended period of times written by multiple different authors in multiple different languages and it's congruent all throughout. And so we need to learn how to understand and interpret the Bible in order to see not only what God is like, but what he requires of us. Check out this challenge that was written by the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, the author is warning the church against apostasy, which means turning away from God. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 says, About this we have so much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This was a rebuke, basically saying, you are immature because you haven't put in the effort. So this is what we're going to try to accomplish this morning. We're going to try to give you some tools so that you can put in the effort that you might be able to understand not only the word of God for yourself, but you will understand who God is and how you can share him with the world around you. And in giving you these tools, we hope that you can go deeper in your personal relationship with our Lord and our Savior. How many of us have sat through a Bible study or a small group and we read a few passages and all of a sudden the inevitable question comes, what does that text mean to you? 
And depending on the group that you're in, perhaps you get five, maybe 10 different answers and you leave it and you leave that place more confused than when you first showed up, not knowing what the Bible really says. Why is that? Well, before I dive into it, let me say this, that the method of learning to study the Bible in the small groups is not necessarily bad. Sometimes we just get the cart before the horse. The small group leader is trying to get us to a place where we can apply the Bible to our lives. However, we, if we jump certain steps, we lose the meaning of the text. Well, let me talk about a few different ways while we get off course. First, we live in a culture that highlights relative truth instead of absolute truth. And what I mean by that is our culture teaches us that you can have a truth that's different than mine's. And so when we read the text to figure out the truth of the Bible, we end up seeing things that are relative to us and not to others and not, and especially not what the original audience would have took, taken away from it. Just recently, I was watching a video online where a person was trying to explain about the need for racial reconciliation. And the person, although good intending, called out that there were people who were theologians that didn't look like them. Therefore, they felt like they couldn't learn from them. And what broke me down the most in the comments of people were lamenting and repenting of listening to theologians that were white and male primarily. And so cross-sectionality has come into the church so much so that I'm now seeing people say that if you're not like me, if you don't understand my plight and my walk, then I can't gain anything from you. And that is not the biblical prescription for learning. Now, what I'm not saying is that we can't learn from different people in different walks of life. But when it comes to the text, when it comes to the Bible, we are all learning from people who come from way different walks of life than we do. And the second thing that keeps us falling apart in small groups and in our interpretation is we emphasize meaning over utilization. That the people who are unskilled in the word are basically immature on milk because of their inability to discern what right and wrong is according to the scripture. They can't utilize the scripture in order to discern the way that they should live their lives because they're basically stuck on the ABCs of their faith. Joshua 1.8 gives us a beautiful picture of how God wanted his people to live in the land that he was giving them in order to do what he called them to do in that land. And in Joshua 1.8, it says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth for you shall meditate on it both day and night. What he's basically saying is essentially that the word of God should be always your focal point all the time. You should be saying, how can I live my life according to the word of God? So let's lay down a few parameters before we hop into some of these tools this morning about how we're going to mature in our faith and grow into the ability to walk out what God has spoken and in doing so, knowing him in a greater capacity. So rule number one, when we're interpreting the scripture, when you are reading the Bible, you're not looking for private interpretation that only relates to you. For the most part, 
the text that we find in Scripture has one meaning. Now, I'll give you that prophecy might have multiple meanings or multiple understandings of uh, while it might be talking about one thing and then in the very next sentence it's talking about something far off uh, or it might be talking about something in the present that's going to be impacted in the later. But for the most part, Scripture has a singular meaning. Now, applications from that meaning may vary, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. But right now, we're talking about what God meant when he said it through his people. See, we have to get to what the original text meant, not only for the hearer, but what the original author's intent was. Now, this process is not original to me. There's many Bible scholars and Bible study methods that will introduce you into a way of getting to the root of what the original text meant. But for our purposes here, we're going to use the OIA method, the OIA method. And OIA stands for observation, interpretation, then application. You see, a lot of times what we do is we go straight to the application without observing the text, without interpreting the text, and then we can apply the text once we've observed and once we've interpreted, then we can apply. And so basically in the observation, you're trying to figure out what is going on in the original writing. And so in the observation process, you ask the question, what do I see? For some of us, this is the hardest part of the process because we want to move too fast through the text. So I believe that many of us simply need to slow down and see what the text is speaking. Here's an example of how we should approach Scripture. Now, on the screen, you see this image. Now, in this image, you see a large square. How many squares can you find in this image? I'll give you a few seconds to count them up. Did you find them all? How many people found 16? Show of hands. You over there. I, I see. I see. Okay. Who found 24? Who found more than 24? Who found 30? Who found more than 30? Well, if you found more than 30, you're outside of the lines. You cheated. There should have been 30 squares that you found. Let's take a look. So in the observation phase, we're supposed to observe and be able to look outside of the things that are just on the surface. But let me, but let me add this. Here's a tip. You don't want to go too deep, but you do want to be like Detective Friday from Dragnet. I know someone like, let's see, like Nap. Nap would understand that, right? Because he's 50 years old today. Happy birthday, Nap. What was Detective Friday known for? He would always state when he was getting evidence or gathering evidence, he would say, only the facts, ma'am. 
And so we open our eyes to the wonderful things of the law when we are observing the scripture. This is the phase where we try and see as much as possible from the text. We're not trying to figure anything out yet. We just want to observe. We just want to see. In this phase, we want to be specific and not use generalizations and try to develop a theological principle based upon what we're seeing. In this phase, we're trying to find out what this text would have meant to the original biblical audience. And so we read carefully. We look and we look and we look again, observing all that we can. So you might be asking, Pastor Sean, what are some things that I'm looking for? I mean, they're just words on a page. Well, so one thing that I might be looking for is repetition. You know, in the original language, using repetition would have been to emphasize. We don't really do that in the West now because we're trained uh, in schools uh, because the teacher says, write me 100 words. And so if you're repeating yourself, your teacher will try and think that you're trying to get over and just get your word count in. But if I was repeating myself as a biblical author, I would have been putting emphasis on what I'm saying because I'm saying the same thing over and over again. And an example of this is in the book of John. Did you know that he used the word believe over 79 times? And it was always used as a verb, never a noun. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was speaking something through John to say that we should believe. You see, finding these key terms are essential in getting the meaning of what the author is trying to communicate. And so step one is finding and observing all these things so that we can understand what did the text mean to the original biblical audience. And so here's one thing I'm going to say. It's not going to mean something totally different today than it meant to the biblical authors. Now, we're going to get an application in a minute. See, that's where we get ourselves in trouble. But it's not going to mean something different to uh, us than it did to them because God spoke a principle in that. Who's talking? Who is the we in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11? Is the person a king or a shepherd or a prophet? Because depending on who's saying it, it might give it a different dynamic. Ask, who is he talking to? Ask, what's the purpose for the conversation? Why are they talking? Ask, were they followers of Christ? Or were they something else? See, we, he, we need to take heed to these things so that we can get the historical, cultural, and literary context of what's being said. The context simply means in what framework are these things being said? I can recall a funny story that I heard in the news, but it obviously wasn't funny at the time, where after a bunch of terrorist attacks were happening in the United States, a contractor was inside the Home Depot and he was talking to his friend quite loudly and said he was going to go into the bathroom to blow it up. Now, depending on context is everything. And so the cops were called, the authorities were called in, and this man was simply saying he was going to go in the bathroom and blow it up. And so in order to get context, in order to figure all these things out, early in our literary journey of learning how to observe the text, we might need some outside resources to help us. And so to help us with the literary context, there are things like Bible dictionaries, atlases, uh, commentaries, lexicons, 
and various things that help us on this journey. Another thing we need to do as we're observing the text is to figure out what kind of literature am I reading? You see, the Bible is made up of all sorts of literature. There's prophecy, there's prose, there's discourse, there's narrative, there's apocalyptic literature, there's poems, there's hyperbole being utilized. And so we need to understand what I'm reading. We do this very well when we're watching movies, right? So if I were to invite you over and we're watching a movie and by the first few minutes in the movie, you can be able to tell what genre of movie it is maybe. So if we're watching a film and it's a Western and the cowboy walks into a saloon and he pulls out his gun and he shoots and the bullet goes and it hits a spittoon and it goes off the keyboard and busts a bunch of glasses on the bar and shoots back up and then shoots himself and he falls out dead, you would say, this is probably a comedy because that's not really realistic. My wife often, when we watch movies, she said, is this based on a true story? Because she wants to know if it's historically accurate. If I were to tell you that story of the cowboy that I just told, you'd be like, there's no way that that really happened, right? And so this is the way that we need to approach the Bible as well. We can laugh at it if it's a Western and a comedy, and then if it is a, a news account of a shooting and someone get killed, then we have a different uh, reaction to it and we listen to the facts differently because the news is reporting it and now we're looking at it as a tragedy because it's real life, it's reporting, right? And the same is true with the Bible. Based on the genre that we're looking at, we need to approach the text differently. Something, something else that you might identify with is when we're listening to the poetry, the Psalms and things of that nature. We listen to lyrics to music differently, and the Psalms were written to music. And so if someone was to say to his wife, baby, my heart's on fire, we can kind of discern what he means by that. We don't literally think that his heart is literally on fire, right? But if it's in uh, one of the TV dramas, that we're watching and the guy grabs his arm and he's like, call 911, my heart's on fire. We go, oh my God, he's having a heart attack, right? And so it depends, the words depend on the genre. Here's a tip, as you're studying the Bible, write out what you think it could have originally meant using past tense. You can write out, Paul exhorted the church to, or Jesus commanded his disciples Two, and that's the observation stage. We also need to understand that eventually God's word is timeless. And if it meant something, then I need to build a bridge from this observation to what it means now. And so I need to look at some other variables. I need to be looking at the significant difference in culture from then to now. For instance, if I'm reading a Old Testament passage, I need to identify the theological differences from the old covenant to the new covenant, because now I'm on the other side, if you will, of Calvary's cross. And so if I'm trying to apply some things to my life now, based upon what I'm reading in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and died for my sins and knowing that I'm no longer under the law, then I can find myself in trouble. 
And so what I need to do is I need to say, what is the theological differences between then and now? And so like the example that I use with the Old Testament and the New Testament, what is the differences theologically? I get this question often when people ask me about reading the Bible. Um, why don't we have to follow the Old Testament rules? Well, one, because there are Old Testament rules that you can't follow anymore, like going to the temple, like the temple's been destroyed, right? And there's other rules that um, you shouldn't want to follow, like when your child is wayward and the Bible tells you to stone your children. I, we wouldn't have no kids um, in our culture. And so why is it different? Because the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was written to a very specific people for a very specific time and a very specific purpose. Like, for instance, some ask about wearing mixed fabrics or eating certain things. Well, if we look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible is where we get the primary, where we get the foundation of God's law and God is revealing himself and revealing his holiness through the children of Israel. And if we look from Exodus through Deuteronomy, we'll see that there are three kinds of laws, three kinds of law. First is the civil regulations. The civil regulation, for instance, covered property rights, marital rights, divorce standards, laws sanctioning theft and murder and crimes. And so Israel was a nation. And so God was giving them the orders of how to cohabitate with one another as a nation. Then there are ritual instructions, and these define the sacrificial system, the festivals, the roles of the priests, the roles of the Levites, and specifically how the tabernacle was erected. Finally, we have the moral principles, which include sexual ethics and major themes uh, of the Ten Commandments and much more. And these three are sometimes called civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. And so which ones do we follow? What do we do? And so we look towards the new covenant in order to see how we interact with the old covenant. In the New Testament, it tells us that the civil law was God's way of shaping the Hebrew society. That means it's not binding today. The ritual law was used to tell us about sacrifices and festivals and the tabernacle to teach us about sin and atonement but that has been superseded by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, the moral laws have ongoing validity, but mostly because they are repeated in one form or another in the New Testament. And so we can see the things that Jesus alluded to and spoke to in the New Testament bringing forth into the new covenant. But I need to say this, we are not under the law anymore. Because of grace, we now live under grace. And now we live under the law of Christ, the law of love. Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. When Jesus was approached and said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus promptly and swiftly told them, I'll give you two. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, with all your gusto, with everything that you got inside of you. And secondarily, Love your neighbor as yourself. So in summary, the civil law was written to a specific people for a specific time. 
the ritual law. The ritual law pointed to Christ and was fulfilled on the cross. He was our perfect sacrifice. And the moral law revealed God's heart concerning morality and were, re and were reinstituted in the new covenant. And the scripture is clear that believers are no longer under the law. And so we observe the text. Now we need to move towards interpretation. Now we all interpret. We all need to be interpreters. Some of you might be saying, well, didn't the people who changed it from Greek and Hebrew to English, weren't they interpreters? Yes. But what you have before you is a translation. You still need to interpret the text. You still need to look and see what the original document is saying. First, in our observation phase, we collected all the data. We collected all the information that we could collect. And now we need to build it up into something. Now we need to build it up into what, what we are going to interpret, what meaning needs to be derived from uh, what was said. I shared the story with you guys before, but one time I was preaching in Togo, West Africa. And it was challenging because you speak, then you have to pause and let the interpreter say what you just said. And you can always tell when the interpreter felt what you just said. Because if I gave a certain amount of energy, the interpreter would give a certain amount of energy. But when I was talking through it to an interpreter that didn't understand fully what I said, it would kind of be like, and they would just say the words. And I'm, I was animated and passionate, and they were just kind of saying the words. Luckily, I had a friend who was from Ghana, which is right next to Togo, who spoke airway and the languages uh, of Togo. And so as I was preaching to the crowd, my friend on the front row kept saying, no. And in his very Ghanaian way, he said, no, you are lying. That is not what he just said. <laughs> and so he stood up and he began to interpret for me. And I was telling the story of David fighting a bear and a lion. Now, my interpreter had a great word for lion. However, bear, he had no context for. And so we need to be able to be able to say what the original person was saying. And so because my friend who was from Ghana now lives in the United States and has had access to bears, he could describe what a bear was, even though the people had no context of what a bear was. I hope that wasn't too confusing. But we have to be able to build a picture out of the words. And so when I said bear, he had to use a sentence and a half to describe what a bear was, but he could do it because he was interpreting instead of just translating word for word. And sometimes we know this as people who speak multiple languages, sometimes things don't carry over in the language. And so that happens in the interpretation process as well. And in the interpretation process, we want to grab a theological principle from what the original author was saying to the original people. And those principles are timeless. In other words, those principles were God's principles in 50 BC. They will be God's principles in 2050 AD. And so for some of us, this is the most challenging aspect. And so since we're looking at theological meaning, or since we're looking at theological principles, we're not creating meaning, but learning the meaning of the original communication, the original transmission. 
And so now we figure out how does it relate to me? We ask, what are the differences? What are the similarities between then and me? As we're pulling principles out of the text, they should be timeless, not reflective of a specific situation. The principle should not be bound by a particular culture. The principle should align with the rest of the scripture, and the principle should be relevant to both biblical and contemporary audiences. And so interpretation builds a bridge from then to now. And here is a sticking point to your principle. Your principle must, your principle must, just like the Bible, just like the Bible is consistent from Genesis to Revelation, the principles that you pull out must also be theologically consistent. Remember, the scripture is a collection of texts that all point to Jesus. And if you're pulling principles out that doesn't fit in with the rest of the Bible, then that principle is probably from you. And finally, we get to the application of the text. How does it work? How does it work? How should an individual Christian today live out this theological principle? Now you can see the problem when we try and do Bible studies and we start with the application without going through the necessary steps to end up where we need to be. Have you ever sat through a sermon and it was power packed and you were so excited about the word and, 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 and the, the depths of in which the preacher was able to articulate it and you left with just this philosophical understanding that you couldn't articulate and how it applied to your life? Well, we can't allow our Bible studies to be like those sermons. We can't allow some philosophical concept that we have no attention to applying to our lives be the end of our Bible study. We have to move the teaching from the pages of scriptures to some tangible thing that I must be able to respond to with my life. So the scripture can have one meaning, but multiple applications, like I said before. So let's take a formal trip back to Joshua 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses is assisted. Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I'm given to you, to the people of Israel. Every place that your so the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will given, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall your territory be. Now man shall be able to stand, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What do you think this text meant to the biblical audience? Well, if we go in and we search the context, Moses had led the children of Israel through the wilderness and Moses was promised that he could not go into the promised land. And so God was specifically speaking to Joshua about being courageous. And when he went into the land, making the word his highest priority and in making it his highest priority that he would be able to draw strength and be courage because God's powering presence would be with him. What are the differences from the biblical audience to us? Well, it's kind of obvious we're not the leaders of the nation of Israel. Although some of us are leaders in the church, we are not embarking on a land conquest. We're not entering into a promised land. We're not under the old covenant of law. And so that's going to mean something totally different than it means to us. And as much as we like to think it here in America, we are not Israel. So what, so what theological concept can we derive from this text? Here we have it. To be effective in serving God and successful in the task to which he has called us, we must draw strength and courage from his presence. We must also be obedient to God's word, meditating on it constantly. You see how that meaning, that was the meaning for Joshua, and that's the meaning for us today, even though there's differences. How does this principle that we just derived fit in with the rest of the Bible? Well, if we read the rest of the Bible, it, is consi it consistently affirms that God's people can draw strength and courage from his presence. In the New Testament, believers experience God's presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whether through the presence in the tabernacle. But likewise, throughout the Old and New Testament, God's people are exhorted to pay close and obedient attention to God's word. And so finally, application. How should the individual Christians today live out these theological principles? I'm so glad you asked. There are numerous principles that we can take away from here. We need to spend more time meditating on God's word by listening to Christian music as we ride in the car, maybe. Maybe listening to more Christian uh, maybe listen to the audio Bible as we ride in the car. Maybe reviewing podcasts. Maybe we listen to it this morning and a week from now and say, let me go back and look at that sermon again. And so I can just meditate on what the word is saying. 
If God calls you to a new scary ministry, such as teaching fourth grade Sunday school, Bueller, then be strengthened and encouraged by his mighty presence. Be obedient to him and focus on scripture. If God is leading you to start a small group and to fill out an application and say, I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but we can do Zoom small groups. And so let me reach out to Pastor Sean and the elders and see if I qualify, if I can be trained to be a small group leader. The fourth grade story applies to you as well. If you're in a church leadership position, realize that successful Christian leadership requires strength and courage that flows from the presence of God. You see how this can be different for each individual, but, but the way, I mean, this can be applied differently to different individuals and in different contexts of their life, the meaning didn't change for you and for me. We got the same principle that we derive our strength from God and we need to be in his word and learn about him. And that's where the power of his presence comes from when we learn to trust him through his word. Listen, church, I don't want you to not be in that small percentage of people who learn how to rightly divide the word of God to discern what they should and should not be doing according to the word of God. And so I want to help. The elders want to help. And so I want to hear from you. What are some of your struggles when it comes to reading the word of God? How can we help you to get over those humps? Think about how powerful it could be if the majority of the believers who call themselves mem the majority of the believers who are part of Northeast Community Church were reading their word, was praying, and was looking for effective ways to reach their community for the sake of Christ. Think about how we could change our communities. Think about how we can change our families. Think about the intimacy that you can have with Christ. I desire for you to be able to consume solid food for the mature so that your powers of discernment might be trained by the constant practice of transforming not only your world, but the world around you.